Hello, and welcome back to From My Mom's Basement, the podcast recorded directly from my mom's basement. I'm your host, David Chamberlain, and you're listening to episode 14 of the podcast, entitled St. Crispin's Day. Thank you for listening. I sit with my legs crossed on the floor. The hot, dull light of early afternoon filters through the living room shades. It's that ugly afternoon light that makes you realize you haven't done anything all day. I am alone. My wife left for a business retreat three days ago. She's left me with a fridge full of microwavable meals. I have not left the house. I have not done anything of real substance for the last two and a half days. I had previously imagined these days of solitude as being hyperproductive. I imagined checking off boxes on my long-neglected to-do list. But I have not done anything. I have sat and festered and stewed and malingered. I feel worthless. I move from the floor to the kitchen. I'm not sure why I do this. Maybe to trick my body into thinking I'm moving towards a goal, that I am working towards an objective. But there is nothing in the kitchen for me. I open the fridge. I close the fridge. I look in the pantry for something. There is nothing. That is not to say the pantry is empty, but there is nothing for me within it. There is only food in there. I knock my knuckles on the kitchen counter and sit down at my dining room table. I think about loneliness for a moment. I think that I need a hobby of some kind. I think that I need a way out. I think about my high school girlfriend. I think of what time must have done to her pretty face. I think of going on Facebook or Instagram just to see, and then I feel intense nausea at the thought of it, and I leave my phone in my pocket. Outside, the sun is sinking. The light is fading, turning from hot yellow to pale gray. Someone is mowing their lawn. I can hear the mower growl. I hear a dog bark. I remember that I was going to mow my lawn this week. That didn't happen. I don't know why. I trace the creases of my bald, bowling ball-sized head and wonder if my wife is cheating on me. I wouldn't blame her if she was. There is a knock at the front door. It's a loud and obnoxious knock, as if the knocker knows who lives inside. I don't move. I wait for the knocker to leave. I wait to be left alone again. The knocking persists. It only grows louder. I stand up from my dining table and move to the living room, hugging the walls. I sneak to a side window and pull the shades back to see who's at my door. There's an old guy on my front step. I guess he's not that old, maybe mid-fifties. He wears a pair of khaki pants, a button-down shirt with some kind of corporate logo on the left breast, and his face is horribly disfigured. I stare while he continues to knock on my door. He looks tired. He has nothing in his hands, no clipboard or merchandise to sell, and his eyes whisper, help me. I open the door. He smiles. His lumpy skin wrinkles around his mouth. His one, working eye looks me up and down and then stares directly into my eyes. The other eye is milky and pale and kind of drifts around in its socket like a bath toy. He's tall. He stands eye to eye with me. Hello, he says. Hi, I say. What can I help you with? Uh, listen, he says, putting on some kind of fakey sales voice. I've been going door-to-door all day. I work for Alco Home Security, see? 
and I haven't gotten a drop to drink out here in the hot sun. I was, I was wondering if I could trouble you for some water. I stare at his working eye and the weird nodules grouped around his nose and bulging forehead. Do, do you want to come inside? I ask, opening the door a little wider. He smiles and nods. That, that would be great, he says, bowing his head and moving inside. I usher him to the dining room table and begin to fix drinks. Are you sure you just want water? I ask. The day is just about over. Want something a little stronger? What do you have? He asks, wiping some sweat from his forehead. Uh, beer and peppermint schnapps, I say. It's leftover from the holidays. We, we, we don't drink much, I guess. I'll, uh, I'll have some schnapps, he says. Good, I say. I break out the bottle from the freezer and fill a couple glasses with ice. He sits and watches me. His twisted nostrils flare as he takes in a deep breath. I bring two full glasses of schnapps to the table and sit down across from him. The glasses are foggy with condensation. Thank you, he says, taking the glass. We drink in silence for a minute. He smells like a hot day. He smells like sweat and sunshine. This is a nice place you got, he says. The left half of his face kind of puckers when he speaks. You live here alone? With my wife, I say, pointing to a portrait of ours on the wall. He nods. We speed through our drinks. Let me grab the bottle, I say, getting up from the table. We go through most of the bottle. By my fourth drink, I notice that the sun is gone and the crickets are out. The only light in the room comes from the bulb hanging over the table. The stranger's face is all twisted up in shadows. He looks like a cartoon monster. Are you from around here? I ask. Uh, no, he says, shaking his head. But I've been through here a lot. It's a nice enough place. I nod. We're both pretty loaded now. I can tell he's drunk. He keeps repositioning his head as though it's something he's trying hard to balance. It waves from side to side like a palm tree in the wind. Have you always been a salesman? I ask. Have you always worked for, for uh, Alco? He smiles and shakes his head. Uh, no, he says, patting the logo on his breast. This is a new thing, I guess. Yeah, th this is a new thing. We sit in silence for a while. Every so often, he puckers his lips and makes drawn-out kissing sounds. I look out the window at my backyard. I was going to mow the lawn before my wife got back. Is, uh, is this what you always wanted? He asks. His voice startles me from my trance. I kind of jump, and he smiles. I'm sorry? I ask. You know, the, the house, the wife, the whole domestic gig. Is, is this all, always what you dreamed of having? I don't know, I say. And then some kind of pain creeps up in my chest. I can't tell where it's coming from, but it throws me into a profound kind of distress. I clutch my glass and hold my breath. I don't know. I toss back the rest of my drink and notice his good eye is locked on something behind me, just above my head. He squints. He's concentrating hard on whatever it is. I look down at my watch and after doing some drunk math, realize my wife should have been home two hours ago. What about you? I ask. Is working door to door your dream? He laughs, but it's sad. No, no, this was never my dream, he says, his eyes still trained on that spot behind me. 
My dream is... My dream is over now. Over? I ask. What what do you mean by that? He brings his eyes down and looks at me. He doesn't really want to talk about it. I can tell. He takes another drink. He's good and drunk now. I, uh, I wasn't born like this, he says, waving his hand over his horrible face. It was an accident. I had an accident. I nod and deliberately avert my gaze. The conversation is turning to a tender and raw subject, to a wound that I don't want to pester. Hmm, I say, keeping my lips together. I feign disinterest, hoping it will encourage him to change the subject. I tap my glass of half-melted ice and whisper the lyrics of a song. I, I, was, I was 26, he says. I thought I was a man. I thought I had lived a real long time already. He laughs again. It's slow and exaggerated, almost like he's singing. Did you ever feel that way when you were in your 20s? Did you feel like you'd been living forever? I felt that way in fourth grade, I say. We both kind of laugh. It was a Tuesday morning, he says. I worked Monday nights till 3 in the a.m., so I was out cold. I'd sleep most of the day. You know how it is when you're younger. You can sleep through the end of the world. You know what I'm talking about? My, my girl was out somewhere. I don't know what she was doing. I, I never found out, actually. But that's not the point. It, it doesn't matter where she was. What matters is that she left one of her... Uh, her hair thingies on? Her hair straightener or something like that? We had a bunch of these little wicker baskets in our bathroom. You know the kind? The little baskets that are all weaved, you know? Anyway, one of them catches on fire from the hair thingy. Of course, this is all shit the fire department told me. I was asleep for all of this. I wake up to the sweet smell of a campfire. I thought my girl was, was cooking me something to eat. I sit up in bed, and, and what do I see? I see a bright wall of fire right in front of me. It looked like the entrance to hell. I shit you not. Flames you wouldn't believe. Beautiful, long, curly flames that stretched from the floor to the ceiling. Bright orange. Bright orange. They made a sound. The flames did. It was the sound of a whisper. I can still hear it. Those flames were blocking my way out, and I had to make a choice. Go through the flames, or out my window. I chose the window. Three stories to the concrete. Whack! If you want a face as pretty as mine, that's all you gotta do. No plastic surgery or anything, just jump off your roof. He laughs again. I try to smile, but I can't. What happened to your girlfriend? I ask. The one that left the, uh, the straightener on. She stuck around for a minute, he says. But once she realized this horror show wasn't going away, she, she took off. I can't blame her, though. Can you? I shrug. But that boy, a 26-year-old boy, he was a different person, man. He had a different life. He saw the world differently. I mean, he literally saw the world differently. I've lived two lives now. Two lives. Have you ever felt that way? I, I, I don't think so, I say. It's like, it's like, 
You know that feeling you sometimes get after a long day, where the morning and the evening feel days apart? Like the day was so long it feels like it was multiple days, not just one? That's how my life feels. I sometimes get the feeling that my youth was a different lifetime, was a different world, was a different human experience. His voice trails off and he closes his eyes and scratches under his chin. His long nails make sandpapery sounds against his unshaven scruff. I can't be sure, but I think he's holding back tears. I don't know what to say. I am drunk and tired and worried about my wife. Her face flashes across my mind. It's her face when she was young, when we first met. She is blonde and skinny and the loveliest thing in the world. I miss that version of my wife. She was unafraid and she loved me. Of course, I'm sure my wife misses the man I was in my youth. I was strong and happy and still had the heart of a boy. I have a man's heart now, burdened with regret and pain and age. I realize that we have been sitting in silence for a very long time. What, 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 what has been the hardest part? I ask, hoping to dispel the silence. I realize quickly that it's a stupid question, if not a personal one. Hmm? He asks. The, the hardest part of what? My eyes dart around the room. I'm looking for a way out. Since your accident, what, what has been the hardest, the hardest part of, of looking the way you do? No, no disrespect. Sorry if that's... No, no, he says. I understand the question. I, I enjoy your frankness. His eyes glisten kind of wildly. They were a little glazed over from all of our drinking. I was an actor, he says, running his fingers over his lips like a bashful child. I was uh, pretty good, too. Showed promise. You're kidding, I say, kind of wiggling my head back and forth. No way. I was, he says. His eyes are lit up brilliantly now, fueled by images of his past. I went to drama school and everything. Like I said, I showed promise, was a, was a leading man type, as they say. No shit, I say, leaning back in my chair and clapping my hands in front of my face. So, uh, what kind of acting did you do? Oh, he says, grinning and licking his crooked teeth. I would, I would happily act in anything I was cast in. Couldn't afford to be picky. Young actors can't afford to be picky, you see. I did everything. Musicals, straight plays, a commercial every now and again, anything. He's lost in his past now, looking at something over my shoulder and smiling wildly. He sees something from his youth, an image maybe. It could be an image of him on stage, him performing. He chuckles quietly and shakes his head and slowly drops his face into his palms. So you, uh, you wanted to be a movie star? I ask. He jerks his head up from his palms and stares at me with wide eyes, as though I just said something obscene. A movie star? He asks me. No, hell no. I didn't care to be famous or anything. I just wanted to be a working actor. A professional actor who paid his bills through his art. That's all I ever wanted. That, that was my dream. But movies never interested me. What I liked, what I wanted to do more than anything, was Shakespeare. I wanted to be a real Shakespearean actor. Really? 
I ask, my mouth wide open. That's right, he says, nodding slowly. But instead, my face got destroyed, and so too did my acting career. You see? Both of them crushed in one fell swoop. Crunch. No one is going to cast someone who looks like me unless they're looking for Quasimodo or something. And I'm not doing Hunchback of Notre Dame for the rest of my life, understand me? Damn, I whisper, keeping my eyes lowered on the table. That's, it must be, it must be really hard. He's quiet now and no longer smiling. Things are serious. You want to know what the funny thing is? He asks. What? I ask. What's funny? That wall of fire? That curtain of flames I was so afraid of? The thing that made me jump from my window? It was more or less an illusion. A thin layer of flames I could have hopped through safely to the other side. At least that's what the firemen told me. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if I just had the courage to jump through the fire? I would be a completely different man now. Who knows who I would be right now? Who knows? Maybe I'd have a family. Maybe I'd be a successful artist. Maybe I'd be rich. But I know a couple things for sure. I sure as hell wouldn't be working for Alco Home Security. And I sure as hell wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. No offense. It it just goes to show how terrified man is of uncertainty. I didn't know what would happen if I jumped into those flames, but I knew exactly what was going to happen if I jumped out the window. So, I chose the window. All the while knowing I was going to bust myself to pieces. He shifts in his seat and lays both of his hands flat out on the table spreading his fingers wide as though readying for a manicure of some kind. Silence returns. I check my watch and see, through blurred vision, that my wife is now almost three hours late. Was her flight delayed? Has she tried to call me? I check my phone and see there are no new notifications. I wipe some sweat from my forehead and let go a sigh, inflating my cheeks with air. What's got you so worried? He asks. My wife, I say. She was supposed to be home by now. She's running. She's running late. He checks his watch and whistles. It is getting late, he says. I, uh, I better get going. He stands and brushes his pant legs and retucks his shirt. His hideous face is familiar to me now. I am no longer shocked when I look at it. It kind of reminds me of a mountainside, striped with different colors and patterned in all kinds of rough and lumpy textures. It is beautiful in its own odd way. Thank you for everything, he says, moving towards the front door. Wait, I say, reaching towards him with a limp and lazy arm. Before you go, do you think you could perform something for me, if it's not too much to ask? He stops and looks down at me. His sadness is visible even behind all of the distracting disfigurement. He struggles to smile. I smile back, struggling to hold my grin as well. There is a twinkle in his eye, and he looks up at the ceiling, as though all of his memories are hiding up there somewhere. After a moment, he brings his eyes back down to me. Do you know the St. Crispin's Day speech? He asks. No, I say. What's that? 
It's Shakespeare, he says. King Henry V. I can perform it for you if you'd like that. Please, I say, holding my arms out, giving him the floor. Please, I'd be honored. He moves to the center of the room, standing away from the dining table, his hands at his sides. Okay, he says, his face suddenly flushed with excitement. This is just before they're about to go into battle, and, and they're pretty sure they're going to lose. Who, who's going into battle? I ask. The English, he says. Who are they fighting? I ask. Uh, the French, he says. I nod, and he closes his eyes and takes in a mighty deep breath. When he opens them again, he is a different person, almost unrecognizable. He becomes someone else. He looks powerful, regal. He assumes the stature of a king. He starts to pace the length of my dining room, taking long, deliberate strides across the room. His eyes dart here and there as if locking eyes with various people in a crowd, with soldiers in an army. His wrinkled Alco button-down is gone now. His khakis have been replaced. He is wearing a crown and is adorned in a king's armament, replete with a shining breastplate, chainmail, pauldrons, and plate legs. A longsword hangs at his side. Its pommel is golden and glistening. We are on a battlefield now, somewhere in the foggy, mist-filled lands of France. I feel the cold wind, and he begins his speech. He knows this monologue well. Each word slips from his mouth with smooth precision. His voice is healthy and well-trained. His knowledge of the circumstances are obviously deep and complex. He speaks to the men of his army as though they are friends, as though they are boys he loves. He never falters. He never searches for the next word to say. This speech is a part of him. He is King Henry V. And I, who has a remedial understanding of Shakespeare and his language, find myself roused and entranced by his speech. He becomes emotional at the close of his monologue and ends his performance in a still, quiet tone. There is a long silence. He holds his head high for a moment. His chest is rising and falling quickly. His chin is raised high and his eyes are locked on some distant, wonderful thing. And then, by degrees, he returns to our reality. His alco button-down is back. His pleated khakis hang loose around his legs. We are both back in my dining room, tired and drunk. He runs his hand across his deformed face and shudders, almost frightened by what he feels. He is back in his nightmare. I give him a standing ovation. My sad claps echo around the empty dining room. He bows. Thank you, I say. Thank you for that. He nods and rubs his eyes. They're sparkling with tears. I, I need to go now, he says, moving again to the front door. Okay, I say, getting up from my seat and following him out. He leaves without saying another word. From my window, I watch his shadow move into the far distance, disappearing into the night. And then I look down at my watch and think about my wife and what she must be doing. And then I sit back down at the dining table. Our glasses are still sitting on the laminate wood, making little rings of moisture. I stare at these glasses 
and think about what fires I am afraid of and what I am willing to destroy of myself to simply avoid jumping through them. Thank you for listening. That was episode 14, titled St. Crispin's Day. This story was written, produced, narrated, and edited by myself, with the music being by Kevin McLeod. Thank you again for listening. Thank you.